Welcome to Healing Lives with Corey Gilbert, a podcast sponsored by the Healing Lives Center. Discover how to love and lead your family well and biblically. God created sex, marriage, and the family for our stewardship, growth, and benefit. My heart and passion is to teach, train, educate, and disciple Christians that want strong marriages and families. The Healing Life Center has been serving Christians since the year 2000. Its mission is to be a center for sex, trauma, and marriage education and transformation, where we offer counseling, coaching, courses, and speaking services to you, your church, or ministry. Check us out at HealingLives.com. Welcome back. This is Dr. Corey Gilbert, and we are walking through Lost in Transnation, a psychiatrist's guide out of the madness. This is an amazingly, incredibly important book. Um, So we are in chapter four in this episode, the Castro Consensus. So we were introduced to Lisa Littman in the previous chapter and um, kind of some of um, her research. So we're going to kind of dive in there as we understand further what is the Castro Consensus? What does that mean and how does that apply? Uh, Lisa Littman observed an unusual trend. So she asked questions, gathered data, crunched numbers, and generated a hypothesis. Acknowledging the limitations of her data, she published her findings and highlighted the urgent need for more research. Dr. Littman did precisely what good ethical researchers should do. How was her paper received? The assaults began swiftly. Junk science is what it was called. Like many studies, Dr. Littman's was first uh, published as a short abstract without Waiting for the entire paper, activists claimed her methodology was faulty. They haven't seen the paper yet. Some folks saw the abstract and were very ready to write about how this couldn't possibly be true, couldn't possibly happen without having read the paper because the paper didn't exist yet. And Dr. Lippman recalled, after the full paper was released, the gender medical establishment worked to discredit and quash her findings. It didn't fit the world we live in now. The Journal of Pediatrics conducted their own study declaring it did not support the rapid onset gender dysphoria hypothesis a statement issued by the Coalition for the Advancement and Application of Psychological Science went further at calling for ed- eliminating the use of ROGD um, and similar concepts for clinical and diagnostic pr- application. Their statement was signed by over 60 professional associations including the APA, Society for Behavioral Medicine and the Uh, American Psychological and Psychiatric Association. The Human Rights Campaign, we've heard of them already, declared Dr. Litman's study junk science. How about the professional group to which I, as a child psychiatrist, once belonged? Even four years after Dr. Litman's paper, the AACAP, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, denies ROGD exists. At their 2022 meeting, a two-hour lecture Trans youth evolving gender identities and detransition omitted any mention of it. Reacting to Dr. Lippman's paper, the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, WPATH, pointed out in 2018 that ROGD is not listed in any official classifications of diseases like the DSM or the ICD. How could it be? The process takes years, and Dr. Lippman had just introduced the concept. Nevertheless, they declared the term rapid onset gender dysphoria is not a medical entity recognized by any major professional association. Therefore, it constitutes nothing more than an acronym, and the Australian division of WPATH issued a similar statement. While the gendered establishment fumed against Littman and ROGD, many clinicians embraced it. In a 2018 paper delineating ethical issues um, in the informed consent process, Stephen Levine wrote about adolescents with ROGD. 
He explained to me his readiness to adopt the term. I use rogued because the vast majority of boys and girls seen for gender issues describe, as do their parents, onset at puberty or several years after. ROGD just described the phenomenon. This is how it's going to be. So one of the primary goals of this book is to pull the curtain back and provide parents with a glimpse of the fervent, ferment um, and quashing of debate regarding how best to help youths with gender dysphoria. Affirming care appears to be a settled science, but it is neither science nor settled. Such an important point. In 2021, Erica Anderson, the first transgender president of WPATH's American Associate, US PATH, wrote a Washington Post op-ed criticizing the medical community's blind embrace of affirming care for minors. In response, WPATH and US PATH issued a joint statement that they oppose the use of the lay press to discuss these issues. Okay. Internally, US PATH proposed a six-month moratorium on its members talking to the press. In response to the gag order, Anderson quit her position on the board, denouncing her tactic, their tactics of muzzling leaders in the US PATH, WPATH. The Endocrine Society also crushed debate. The Society's 2017 guidelines calling for puberty blockers at an early age, followed by cross-sex hormones, leaves patients infertile. Whoa, that's a big deal. There was, there must have been lots of discussion about that, right? Dr. William Malone is an endocrinologist who treats adolescents and a founder of the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, an international group of over 100 clinicians and researchers. He described the ES meeting, so the Endocrine Society's meeting, uh, at which the 2017 guidelines were introduced. And here's his quote. They rolled out a set of guidelines for gender dysphoria adolescents and children that had really no evidence base and essentially said that, okay, your job as endocrinologist now is to medically affirm children, well, i.e. healthy adolescents, with puberty blockers, with cross-sex hormones. There was no discussion at all. It was difficult even to submit questions after they presented the guidelines. It was done under an atmosphere of this is how it's going to be. And if you ask questions, you're a bigot. In 2020, Dr. Quentin Van Metter, a pediatric endocrinologist and member of the ES, proposed the society host a debate on the treatment of transgender youth at their annual meeting. He offered to set up everything. All he asked was the ES allow open dialogue. Informed that he missed the deadline, Dr. Van Metter tried again in 2021, but received no response. In 2022, again, no response. You get the picture. If dialogue was permitted, doctors critical of the ES guidelines could voice their objections. They could point to studies with troubling results. Young adults could be brought in to share their stories and express their regret. Other doctors could learn about other countries' systematic reviews and their conclusions that the risk of hormones outweigh the benefits. Perhaps the media would have reported on the controversy. Maybe there would have been no need for this book. Wow. The American Academy of Pediatrics has also been taken over by gender zealots. In 2018, the AAP endorsed gender-affirming care, GAC, for all gender dysphoria, no matter the age of the child. This included immediate social transition before puberty. AAP policy is considered the gold standard for child treatment. If your child has gender distress, your pediatrician will most likely follow the AAP's playbook. How was this policy crafted? Contrary to what you're led to believe by mainstream media and trans activists, rank and file AAP members had nothing to do with it. 
AAP members don't even get to vote on new policy statements prior to release. In fact, all AAP policy statements were produced, passed, and publicly released by a maximum of 30 pediatricians who sit on the board of directors and a few self-selecting committees pertinent to the issue being considered. The 2018 gender affirmation-only policy, for example, was written by a Brown University pediatrician and child psychiatrist, Jason Rafferty, who had affirmed and transitioned children for years. It was then edited, approved, and released by other long-term LGBTQ activist pediatricians, including at least one other gender-affirming co colleague and the AAP Board of Directors. The remaining 66,000 AAP members, those who spend long days taking care of children, had no voice in the matter. In fact, most AAP pediatricians first read the new policy on affirming care at the same time you did when it was released to the media. One might argue it is necessary to have policies written by small groups, by expert pediatricians, to guarantee that they are scientifically sound. There's just one problem. The AAP's policy statement contradicts the very studies it cites. The AP did not count on being fact-checked by Dr. James Cantor, a psychologist and GD expert who practiced in Kenneth Zucker's Toronto clinic. Dr. Cantor knew almost all clinics used a watchful waiting approach because he, the vast majority of childhood GD cases desisted by late adolescence. Clinics would not consider medical interventions prior to age 12 and often not before age 16. This pr prompted him to hunt down and read AAP's purported evidence. Cantor made three important observations. First, he found AAP relied heavily on a claim that conversion therapy was being foisted on children unhappy with their sex and needed to be rejected. Cantor pointed out this was a fallacy since conversion therapy only applied to sexual orientation. Indeed, that is precisely what the studies AAP cited pertain to. Attempts to change sexual orientation in adults, not one citation pertaining to gender dysphoria. Second, he noted that the AAP simply disappeared the 11 follow-up studies of gender dysphoria children in the psychi psychiatric literature that revealed high rates of natural desistance. And finally, he noted that the References AAP cited as supporting gender affirmation only actually outright contradicted that policy repeatedly endorsed, endorsing watchful waiting. Cantor summarized the AAP statement this way, AAP is, of course, free to establish whatever policy it likes on whatever basis it likes, but any assertion that their policy is based on evidence is demonstrably false. <laughs> Quite an accusation. Has the AAP responded to Dr. Cantor? Of course not. Is, there, is your pediatrician aware of this fiasco? I highly doubt it. Um, he or she's been trained to trust the AAP. In the meantime, AAP bullies stifled debate. It even uh, rejected um, SEGM's application to set up an information table. Just a table with pamphlets manned by SEGM members, um, something dozens of organizations and drug companies and other businesses do without obstacles at its 2021 annual meeting. Joseph Zenga is a past president of both AAP and the American College of Pediatricians. The latter is an organization formed by AAP members in 2002 who were fed up with the organization's capture of ultra-liberal agendas such as over-the-counter contraception and abortion rights for teens without parental consent. Their dissent was silenced, so they went off and formed their own professional group. Dr. Zenga explained to me that the AAP holds a conference every year, the annual leadership forum, ALF, 
The AP Board of Directors, as well as the President and Vice President of all the chapters of AAP attend. The ALF discusses resolutions submitted to them. In 2021, pediatrician and AAP member Julia Manson submitted resolution suggesting the Academy halt their promotion of medical transition for minors until research demonstrating long-term benefit. What could be more reasonable? The resolution called for a hiatus until doctors, patients, and families have sufficient evidence of safety and effectiveness. Rank-and-file pediatricians agreed. Because of the pandemic, they had the resolution online and it got a lot of engagement. Dr. Mason said it was in the top five in terms of pediatrician engagement, and it was four to one positive versus negative votes. Dr. Mason's resolution was submitted to a reference committee at the ALF for discussion and vote on whether to submit to the ALF itself. It received 80% yes votes. That was about the highest support of any resolution in the committee. But when the committee itself sat to discuss what resolutions would be presented, they had no recommendation for that resolution, and the resolution disappeared. In 2022, Dr. Mason submitted another resolution calling for caution. AAP leadership invented a rule that resolutions unsponsored by a chapter or committee cannot be reviewed. There were four other pediatricians who co-authored with me, but it got buried. Nobody could give it a yes or no vote, and very few could even read it, Dr. Mason said. It was bureaucratic trickery. Previously, non-existent sponsorship rule seemed designed to block the resolution questioning affirming care. Being a persistent fellow, Dr. Zinga personally asked AAP leadership to change course. He told me, the Academy of late has been unwilling to even discuss the transgender issue. It's something that I, as a past president, a member of the past president's advisory committee, have asked the committee to consider and discuss. It unfortunately never gets added to their meeting agenda. I stand here and say I'm disappointed. The science says that children and adolescents are not capable of making this kinds of decisions. Note the AAP's description of their committees as a trusted source of expert opinion on scientific principles in pediatric health care delivery. Dr. Zenga submitted an article to Georgia's AAP newsletter urging discussion of unproven affirmation therapies and return to the principle of do no harm. The chapter rejected his submission. I remind you, Dr. Zenga is a previous president of the AAP. Okay, let's examine this for a moment. The AAP takes time in its leadership forum to address racism in medical education, cultural headwear discrimination among children, and promoting recycling. While these issues may warrant attention, so does the permanent disfigurement and desterilization of kids without strong evidence of lasting benefit. Dr. Mason summed up the medical establishment's endemic problem. When we hear that 22 professional organizations support affirmation, this is not the voice of the average pediatrician. It's the position of a few activists that have captured key committees at these medical societies and are using the bureaucracy to ensure the voice of regular pediatrician isn't heard. Learning from Fidel Castro. The APA, the endocrine system, WPATH AAP, while leading the public to believe that their policies are reaching, are reached following robust research and exchange of ideas, these groups act as a monolithic mouthpiece regurgitating the articles of faith. It's a fraud. Doctors and researchers are at war over gender treatment. There's no medical consensus on treatment of transgender identifying people, only a Castro consensus. How did Fidel Castro rule Cuba for over four decades? Easy. He banned opposition. There were no authentic elections, so Castro always won in a landslide. Then he proclaimed to his country that the, and to the world that once again he had the full support of the Cuban people. 
the medical community has adopted Fidel's method. Policymaking is dictated by a small number of ideological bullies who silence dissenting voices like those of Drs. Malone, Van Meter, Cantor, Zenga, Mason, Anderson, Lyon, and others. Only one approach is permitted, gender-affirming care, GAC. Then the establishment institutions proclaim the science is settled, everyone agrees. How does this affect parents? It affects you big time. You trust your pediatrician and turn to her for guidance and information. But your pediatrician is busy and cannot possibly keep up to date on every topic in her field. So she turns to the AAP for guidance. She trusts them and assumes their positions have been rigorously reviewed and otherwise they wouldn't have been adopted. That's how your pediatrician adopts the AAP positions as her own. But now you know the pro-affirmation lobbying is running things at the AAP. So as Dr. Van Meter put it to me, the AAP is a lost cause. When you reach the end of this book, you'll likely know much more about transgender identity kids than your pediatrician. Pro-affirmation activists discovered Dr. Littman worked with the Rhode Island Department of Health on projects supporting the health of pregnant mothers and premature babies, completely unrelated to transgenderism. Nonetheless, they wrote a letter demanding she be fired. The paperwork had already been submitted to renew her contract for another year, but Dr. Littman wasn't rehired. Followers of the Articles of Faith sent a clear message, contradict us and you will be out of work. Dr. Littman was also rebuffed by Brown University, where she was an assistant professor. After the attack on her research, Brown removed her paper from its sites and apologized. Brown community members were expressing concerns that the conclusion of the study could be used to discredit efforts to support transgender youth and invalidate the perspectives of members of the transgender community, the Dean of Brown's School of Public Health said. Brown's mission is to serve the community, the nation, and the world by discovering, communicating, and preserving knowledge and understanding in a spirit of free inquiry. <laughs> That's funny. Brown University, what happened to your spirit of free inquiry? When did it come to Dr. Lippman's paper? PLOS One, the journal that originally reviewed, approved, and published Dr. Lippman's research, also cracked under pressure, initiating an uncommon post-publication re-review. Dr. Littman stood strong. She eventually republished her paper with minor changes in the same conclusion. Social contagion may be a factor in the development of adolescent onset gender dysphoria. It didn't matter. The activists attacked us. The Dr. Littman's results stayed the same. They concluded, uh, continued to smear her research. The human rights campaign claimed her paper needed additional review because it was riddled with issues. Southern Poverty Law Center asserted that Brown University took it down because the data was were bunk. Nope. Interesting spin. Affirming care proponents propose the striking rise in gender dysphoria is due to society's increasing acceptance. There were always this many trans people. They just never had the words to express themselves or faith that society would accept them. As psychology professor Philip Hammack put it in the New York Times, the spike in trans-identifying teenagers signifies a new confidence among a new generation to be authentic in their gender identity. The Times wasn't sure whether that jump in the number of those identifying as trans reflects inaccuracies in the previous estimate, um, a true increase in the number of transgender adolescents or both. That's the bewildering question of why this is all happening, Dr. Jody Herman added today, added in. Dr. Herman, um, are you unaware of Lisa Littman's paper and her robust evidence for social contagion as a contributing factor to the adolescent gender dysphoria? 
or are you simply dismissing her social uh, contribution? Question here. If the rise in gender dysphoria is due to social acceptance, where are the hordes of eager, newly identified trans non-binary gender fluid adults in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s? Why do we see only teens and young adults coming out with their friends after binging on social media? Mic drop. Let's say for argument's sake that the soaring rates among youth are due to increasing social acceptance. How then do we explain the alarming rates of mental health issues in young uh, in youth of diverse gender identities? Now here's an interesting spin. Their emotional problems are due to society's transphobia. Yep, that's what we're supposed to believe. The rates of transgender identifying teens have skyrocketed because society is more accepting. But those same people who are more accepted suffer from anxiety, depression, and increased suicidality because, well, there's so much transphobia. This is intellectually dishonest. It's one or the other. You can't have it both ways. Blaming Rosa's anxiety on society's transphobia is based on the minority stress model. The idea that sexual minorities are victims of hate and discrimination and as a result, suffer mental health burdens like anxiety, bipolar disorder, and suicidal thoughts and attempts. If the minority stress model was valid, we expect the mental health of transgender people to improve with increasing societal acceptance. But we don't see that. In 2020, the authors of a 35-year chart review of 8,263 Dutch patients at Holland's Primary Gender Clinic noted an increasing cultural acceptance of transgender persons over the past nearly half century, but little impact on suicide rates. The minority stress model is also conveniently the go-to explanation for the phenomenon of detransitioning. A speaker at the AACAP 2022 annual meeting explained that when after social transition and medical treatment, people decide to turn back and live in congruence with their sex, it does not necessarily mean they re regret transitioning. For a small minority, gender traje trajectories are not linear and dynamic. These individuals have evolving paths. It is simply a shift in expression and internal and external factors must be considered, including family and society stigma. Conservative homes in the military were mentioned. This is astonishing to me. I am told by AACAP to immediately affirm a four-year-old without considering the context or complexity of the child's life without asking what factors may have led to his wish to be or his insistence that he is the opposite sex. But when a 25-year-old woman claims I made the mistake of my life, I'm infertile and have a beard and filled with regret, my therapist and doctors failed me, these mental health professionals call for complex analysis of internal and external factors, including what they call internalized, internalization of transphobia. She's rejected her male identity because she hates herself. <laughs> no, my esteemed colleagues, she rejected her male identity because she is a woman. It seems to me if their primary concern was these young people in distress, wouldn't the AACAP, instead of invoking internalization, internalized transphobia, invite detransitioners to speak at their meetings and to describe their experiences at the hands of psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, and counselors so we might learn from them and help others seeking our aid. The attacks on Dr. Littman had a silver lining. Her paper has been viewed or downloaded nearly half a million times. Unheard of success. That success came at a price. She lost one of her jobs. The institutions that published her work turned their backs on her. She had her research dragged through the mud. To her credit, Dr. Littman isn't bitter. 
I just feel as a, as a scientist, as a responsible person, that despite the noise, I have to get where the truth is. Yes, I love that. Silencing other voices. Dr. Lindman wasn't the only one targeted by gender activists for violating the Castro consensus. In 2020, Abigail Schreier wrote the bombshell book Irreversible Damage, based on Dr. Lippmann's research and families of rogued kids. For endorsing and publicizing rogues, Schreier was boycotted. When she appeared on the popular podcast The Joe Rogan Experience, employees mounted a campaign to cancel the show. Amazon blocked advertising for Irreversible Damage the month um, it was released. The next year, Amazon employees circulated a petition to ban sales of the book on the platform. They had reason to hope for success. Target had pulled Schreier's blockbuster book from its shelves months before, only to return it after a public outcry against censorship. The controversy surrounding irreversible damage was heated, but not new. The pro-affirmation inquisition existed years before Dr. Littman's research. One of their most prized victims, Kenneth Zucker. As discussed, Dr. Zucker is a long-acknowledged authority on children with gender dysphoria. He founded Toronto's Child, Youth, and Family Gender Identity Clinic, arguably the first such clinic in the world, and is one of the most cited names in the literature. Dr. Zucker was once uh, as much as an insider in the gender establishment as possible, but he failed to follow details of the Articles of Faith. Dr. Zucker's approach was a cautious one, to help his gender dysphoric patients, sometimes as young as three, to reach a sense of comfort with their own bodies without affirming an opposite sex identity. This is called watchful waiting. Remember, between 61 and 98% of young children with gender dysphoria eventually embrace their biological sex. Given those numbers and the medical and psychological risks of social and medical interventions, Zucker's cautious approach makes sense. But for his views, Dr. Zucker was accused of practicing conversion therapy. The term originally applied to therapy for individuals who were struggling with their same-sex attraction and wished to develop a heterosexual orientation. 20 states and the District of Columbia ban conversion therapy. Although sexual orientation is entirely different from gender identity, the same term has been applied to any therapy that is not 100% affirming of the patient's stated gender identity based on the Articles of Faith that gender identity is inborn and unchangeable. I know, it's unchangeable, but it's also fluid. If you still expect consistent and sensible thinking on this topic, you're going to continue to be disappointed. Canada officially banned conversion therapy for gender distressed people in 2021. Their Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called the practice despicable and degrading. Yet in 2015, long before the law officially made Dr. Zucker an outlaw, he was removed from his position and the clinic was shuttered. The hospital that hosted Dr. Zucker's gender clinic did an external review. They ambushed him on a vacation calling him back to his office, where they accused him of practicing conversion therapy and of shaming and traumatizing patients. Dr. Zucker denied the accusations, but he was fired the same day. An investigation actually exonerated Dr. Zucker and found activists wanted his removal solely because he helped children come to terms with their sex. He was awarded substantial damages and a public apology, but from the 50 years in the field of transgender care, this is how Stephen Levine sees the battle. Nowhere in medicine has free speech been so, as limited as it has been in the trans arena. Skeptics are being institutionally suppressed. Critics, critical letters to the editor are refused publication. Symposia submitted for presentation at national meetings are rejected. Scheduled lectures are canceled and pressure has been exerted to get respected academics fired. The madness of knee-jerk affirmation. I was contacted contacted by lawyers in Salt Lake City about a 13-year-old boy 
whose divorced parents were in litigation over his social transition. Zach had recently declared himself a girl and his mother was 100% on board. New name, pronouns, dresses. His father wasn't going along with it. I reviewed the records from Zach's recent psychiatric hospitalization. Staff listed gender dysphoria as one of the diagnoses and consistently used his girl's name or female pronouns, but the reasoning for those clinical decisions was absent. The hospital records indicated Zach heard voices and saw ghosts. I searched for more information about the voices and the ghosts, but found none. Was it possible no one had asked? Psychotic symptoms, such as auditory or visual hallucinations, always warrant further questions. An obvious one. What did the voices say? Was Zach hearing voices telling him he's a girl? These were questions that demanded attention from his clinicians prior to affirming a new identity. Maybe Zach's gender dysphoria was related to his disordered thinking and hallucinations. Perhaps instead of lip gloss, he needed Respiradol, an antipsychotic medication. I found similar madness in the care of 17-year-old Nicole in Boston. Nicole's life had been chaotic. Her father left when she was two, and her mother had five other kids with two other men. She was sexually abused by a neighbor, and her family had been homeless for months on several occasions. She had an IQ of 68. It was on these three psychiatric medications to treat hallucinations, ADHD, and depression. When she discovered her mother was pregnant, Nicole came out as a boy. At the same time, I was consulted. Nicole was in foster care due to charges of physical abuse by her mother. Nicole wanted testosterone. I was asking by the, asked by the court to provide my professional opinion regarding gender-affirming care, including testosterone for her. Having read this far, I trust you can figure out what I said. No testosterone for Nicole. Zach lives in Utah and Nicole in Massachusetts, both states that ban conversion therapy for minors. As you saw with Dr. Zucker, that means any approach that fails to immediately affirm a child's new identity is prohibited. Like Dr. Zucker, I put myself um, at risk when I argued that Zach and Nicole should not be affirmed, but instead have their long-term mental health issues treated. At least with those two cons consultations, my role was prov to provide my professional opinion. But that wasn't the case with David, a patient in Colorado with whom I worked directly. One day David told his parents that he's transgender and asked to be called Zoe, she and her. He wanted blockers because um, the hair sprouting over the corners of his lips and his cracking voice reminded him he's a boy. If only he could take estrogen and he told me have his, having breasts, wider hips would make him feel confident and secure. The medical establishment, the DSM-5, and the state of Colorado say the only permissible response I'm allowed is to act as if he was a girl. David must be in the driver's seat. Forget about do no harm. If he picks a different gender identity name and pronouns next week, I must use those. I am to instruct parents to tell everyone, family members, school staff, his piano teacher, and dentist to do the same. His mom, dad, and I are all supposed to celebrate what doctors at John Hopkins call David's evolving sense of self. Celebrating an evolving sense of self sounds fine and dandy, but I happen to know that when David first appeared at a family event and address, his mother, a strong feminist and lifelong liberal who supported gay marriage and survived 9-11 and breast cancer, had to flee to a restroom where she had the first panic attack in her life. I also know puberty blockers might be followed by estrogen and perhaps even orchiotomy or castration. He could end up disfigured and infertile and still not be satisfied with his body. When David is ready, I must share those dangers with him. I took an oath to prevent harm, no matter what the gender medical establishment of the state of Colorado might say. For refusing to validate the opposite sex identities of Rosa and David, I risk an investigation like Dr. Zucker's, but I'll live with that. 
I'm going to do what's best for my patients. Discord on Discord. On my advice, Russell's parents dug into her social media, especially Discord. They discovered that for the past five months, her daughter was part of a group of four girls, two of whom identified as boys. They played Roblox and Minecraft, but also spoke of harming themselves with knives or cigarette lighters. Rosa was in an intense emotional and sexualized relationship with one of the transgender girls, Fletcher, who lived in the Midwest. They spoke and FaceTimed day and night. Among the messages from Fletcher to their daughter, I'm nibbling your neck. I'm making you moan. It was Fletcher, Fletcher who suggested to Rosa that she may be a boy and instructed her on how to come out in a text to her parents. Rosa told me Fletcher was trans and gay and one of her favorite people on the planet. They understood each other and she explained. She could tell him everything. Fletcher knew how to help her and was her therapist. I need him in my life. I need to be able to speak with him at any time. Her parents further discovered that a month earlier, their daughter had received a video of one of the older girls in the group masturbating. The following day, Rosa had searched the internet for ways to harm herself. I saw her at once for a full assessment. She described severe anxiety, depression, and thoughts of ending her life in a few months if she didn't feel better. She was going to wait two months. She had no intention of harming herself now and was willing to switch to a stronger medication and just to sign a no harm contract. But it's also necessary to, to sever the harmful relationships. Her parents blocked the internet and changed the Wi-Fi. Dad made a contract list, contact list on her phone that couldn't be edited. Rosa protested and sobbed. She tried to reach Fletcher on her mother's phone and by using the Discord app on the VR Oculus. Her primary concern was that without her, he would commit suicide. There was a lot of work to do. She learned and began to practice some coping skills. We dived into her long history of social anxiety, her relationship with Sean, and lockdowns. We spoke about her loneliness and turned to Discord, turning to Discord and meeting Fletcher and other girls and their profound influence on her thinking and feeling. She began to realize her attachment to Fletcher had been unhealthy and it was like I was under a spell. The medication took the edge off her anxiety and irritability. She didn't care so much about names and pronouns. She grew her hair out. After a few months off the internet, Rosa was feeling better and reconnecting with her family. She wasn't yet out of the woods and back to wearing a bikini. Um, that took about a year, but it happened. In the end, Rosa wasn't trans. Her gender dysphoria was precisely as Lisa Littman theorized. It was a coping mechanism response to multiple complex factors, including long-standing anxiety, social isolation, and social contagion. If her parents hadn't walked out of that gender clinic, Rosa might have soon been on blockers and testosterone with her emotional issues unaddressed. Rosa and her parents may have joined the many unsuspecting families who became, have become casualties of gender clinics, a frightening situation the public is only beginning to understand. Thank you for tuning in to the Healing Lives with Corey Gilbert podcast. It has been an honor to serve. If you are struggling, have questions, or in need, Dr. Gilbert offers a free consultation for new clients. Check us out at HealingLives.com to book a call. If this has been helpful to you, please share it, leave a review, and help us get the word out so that we can see lives changed, marriages transformed, and more people come into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. The Healing Life Center offers online courses, programs, books, intensives, and other services to help you live biblically and well. Discover more resources on YouTube and in Dr. Gilbert's Healing Marriage Facebook group, The Healing Marriage.